Congratulations, and Mark. I did it. I got I got Billy Joel this songs. This might have been Peek Oppenheimer. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by two co-hosts. One is Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Good day. Good day to you. And the other, phoning in from the mountain time zone, is Tablet Senior Writer Leah Leibovitz. As we say here in South Dakota, aloha. <laughs> what are you wearing, Liel? So this is the thing. I'm I'm in bed in my Holiday Inn Express, uh, you know, hotel room. What time is it there? And, and I'm only wearing like I'm only slightly less dressed than I would be if I came to the studio this morning. <laughs> I like that Mark has now asked, like, talked about your clothing several times in consecutive episodes on this show. Oh yeah. It's 2019, Stephanie. It's okay. It's okay. For this week's episode, uh, Stephanie had a great sit down, an interview with uh, Jew of the Week Liz Feldman, the creator of the very hot Netflix show Dead to Me. And our Gentile of the Week is a little bit of a chestnut. We taped it a few months ago for our conversion episode, and then it didn't make it on just because that episode was jam packed with stories about converts to Judaism. And this guy is a former mainline Protestant who converted to Mormonism as an openly gay man. His name is Dennis Schleicher. His book is called Is He Not? Why a gay man would become a member of the Church of Jesus Christ, and that's a pretty cool interview. So hang on. I always for- like the the designation mainline Protestant. It's a very reaffirming. I feel like I'm not weird. I'm like just this mainline, just thing. mainline, and I'm normal. And there are so few of them left. I mean, the quote mainline Protestant the churches white are yeah, they're they're, <laughs> they're not really the main line of anything anymore. Oh, nothing. But you know what's mainline within Judaism is listening to unorthodox. That's true. Which you know we're on our four year anniversary. Today, as we tape this, July 30th is not only the birthday of my good buddy Seth, but is also the four-year anniversary of Unorthodox. So happy birthday, guys. I will say that the traditional gift for four years is fruit or flowers. Oh, is that right? And then the modern gift is appliances. Ooh. (laughs) By the way, one, you know how like one is paper? Yeah, one. The modern gift is now clocks. I don't know like who's deciding <laughs> who's this. Who's deciding this? That's what Google says. An algorithm. Wait, what is the four-year gift again? Fruit or flowers in the U.S. and linen or silk in the U.K. I would like some linen. Yeah, I think you guys should do like a full linen suit. <laughs> we could talk about it on air. I would like some silk. And I would like an appliance. I would like an espresso maker. I want an Instapot. An Instapot. <laughs> Can you believe we're four though? That is so crazy. I remember that first summer, I think our episode two or three, I was, I had to take the bus in from New Jersey from, I was staying with my family on Long Beach Island. That was before we had like big podcast money. That's right. You still had to take the bus. I had to take the bus and I couldn't do like a remote. We didn't know about live hookups and, and whatnot or <laughs> tapes. We didn't have the unorthodox jet quite yet. <laughs> That's true. Um, I have trouble listening to the early episodes. Once in a while, I'll listen to 10 seconds and I'll cringe. Well, I didn't talk for the first year, so I don't like listening to those because, you know, like we all know, we all know why, why we listen. But we still get those emails from new listeners who say like, I went back to, to be a completist and Stephanie, you've come such a long way. But also it's such a different world when we started four years ago. We were just like, there's an election coming up. Ha ha ha. (laughs) Jews. Now we're just like, we are depressed. And no one will ever hate Jews again. (laughs) It's true. It was such a, Oh, gosh. But it's interesting. We've talked to a lot of people over four years. Mm-hmm. What is that? Like 40 episodes a year times two guests. Do you have like a favorite guest moment? Some Either of you, Liel, Stephanie, if you're thinking back on this show on four years, what pops into your mind? I will say that like the best part of this show has been that I got to like forcefully befriend Molly Yeh. She came on the show. Mm-hmm. I made her be my friend. Mm-hmm. She came to my wedding. Came to your wedding. Danced my to your wedding. wedding. Cake. Yep. And then I visited her on the Minnesota-North Dakota border. And I was like, if that's what it means to have a podcast, it means you could be like, I want to be friends with this person and I will become friends with this person. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm good. Yeah, all in. So many magical moments to recount. And honestly, uh, it's all about you guys. I know. I think your friend, but as a nerdy uh boy who spent literally, you know, every waking moment between the ages of, say, 8 to, say, 14, watching Monty Python, like, obsessively, to hear John Cleese come on the show and be absolutely beside himself when Mm -hmm. I told him he was the Gentile of the week. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't think I'm ever going to live that down. But you also got that great moment with David Duchovny where you told him about watching X-Files in the Army. Right, but not as great a moment with David Duchovny as you had when he said, 
Hi, Stephanie. That was a beautiful time. And you also nerded out on Frakes, the Star Trek guy. That's right. So many magical moments. So many magical moments. I asked the question, yet I can't really think. You know, for me, and this is not surprising given my extroverted nature, this won't surprise you, but the live shows, like... Just just seeing people come together in community there and meet each other and recognize each other from the Facebook group or say like, oh, I remember they read your letter on the air. Like, that's really special. I really like that sense that we're sort of like a shul without walls. We're an audio shul or an, an audio, we're an audio tribe. We're like a tabernacle in your ears. We kind of are. We're a mishkan. There we go. I agree completely. You know, like, it's really nice to have all these people you've pined for since <laughs> childhood or early adulthood. But then you come to this room and you realize what it is that we do here. And by we, I don't just mean, you know, us who put up the show, but also the J crew who listen and like make this a part of their lives. Yeah. It's just the most rewarding feeling in the world. Even if we didn't have a private jet uh, for the show. <laughs> yeah. We're going to talk about the fundraiser. Just... Don't tell them about the jet. <laughs> <laughs> Leo, what's amazing is that it's waiting for you outside the Holiday Inn Express in South Dakota, <laughs> like that you found a runway big enough to accommodate our rather large private and jet. And that like you haven't forgotten your Holiday Inn roots. That's right. <laughs> I have some like travel related news that I think will be of particular interest to Leo. Okay. Private jet related. Private news. jet related. What will you and Ben be doing with the private jet? I am taking the unorthodox private jet to Israel in August. No way. For Ben Cohen's first trip to Israel. Oh my God. This is called, it's like Ben Wright. Ben Wright. Ben Wright. <laughs> <laughs> is this just for pleasure or is he like, is he covering well, some sort of sporting event there? No, no. Um, there's people he wants to meet that he's reported on and stuff and same with me, but it's a vacation. Awesome. I will be unplugging. Ben and I will be in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, a few other places. It's going to be amazing. I'm actually really, really excited. The list of restaurant recommendations that I'm preparing is already like seven pages long. Leo's like, there's a place you have to call a number to get in. I'll do it for you. <laughs> a guy named there's Dudu. A guy. Yeah. <laughs> there's a guy named Dudu. He's You'll, like, I'll text yeah. him. The password is Shloimi. You call Nimrod and you say, listen. <laughs> you know what happens when an unorthodox host goes to Tel Aviv is I think there's a required meetup. There is. There is. I will be doing a meetup. I don't know when or where. But yeah, I think I'll be there like August 9th through 13th. So it'll be one of those days. It's a great time, by the way, to go to Tel Aviv August. Yeah. It's well known for that. <laughs> okay. So if you guys want to be part of my Tel Aviv meetup, email us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com with the subject line, Stephanie in Tel Aviv. And Is that one word or, th or four? It's, it's a hashtag. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And we will put you on the list to get some secret info of where to go. And we should say that Mark's meetup and my meetup in Tel Aviv have really only been the buildup to like yeah. the grand meetup. I know. Is there a space big enough for this? <laughs> she will be bringing her recorder. We will be sending her with a Zoom. There may be Jew of the Week oh, interviews yeah, of course. That, that come out of it. Leo, what's going on with you? Any news from South Dakota in The Life of Leibovitz? By the way, is a Mordecai Rickler novel waiting to be written? <laughs> the Life of Leibovitz. The one thing that sort of baffled me, so I was walking... Um, into LaGuardia, which is at this point a refugee camp that LaGuardia. has flights coming in and out of it. Um, and there's like a little, I noticed like out of the corner of my eye, this little roped off area with astroturf. And it's like teeny tiny. It's the size of like, you know, someone's desk. And it has a little fence around it. And then a sign that says, pet relief area. And I felt like whoever put this in here really doesn't know dogs. You know, like, uh, hey, Jerry, man, what are we going to do about all the dogs that need relief? Like, I don't think they will go unless they have their own special designated area with AstroTurf. Dude, it's LaGuardia. Like, the whole thing is a pet Wait, relief so area. There's now, I've seen the pet relief areas at rest stops on the Jersey Turnpike. There's now an indoor one at LaGuardia Airport? Yeah. For all of the therapy dogs? Mm-hmm acupuncture dogs, pleasure dogs, whatever. Uh, that's And if like the line to the women's room is too long, you can also, you know. <laughs> I, if you're a dog, like what isn't a pet relief area? You know what's equally absurd? And, and this was my morning. I was at the New Haven train station. And this also just tells you where one's mind goes when you're entering year five of hosting a Jewish podcast, which is you start seeing everything through the lens of you know Jew, not a Jew, podcast worthy, not podcast worthy. So I'm at the New Haven train station. I'm parking. Fortunately, at 5.17 a.m., there's a lot of parking. It's sort of my, it's like <laughs> me and this other dude, and we both have the whole parking lot uh, to choose from. And we sort of nod, and we both go off in different directions of the parking lot. I go east side, he goes west side, and I park my little Prius. And he's in a, a, a pickup truck and 
I noticed that he's backed into his spot. Now, there's some listeners out there who are going to know exactly what I'm saying. But when I see someone back into a parking spot, first of all, I'm just going to say it. It seems goyish to me. I don't think Jews back into parking spots. And I'm going to do some some deep research on this in the coming weeks. I'm going to defend it. There's, there are scholarly articles that have been written or need to be written on this. But in my experience, leaving aside the Jew, not a Jew question, there's a kind of machismo to people who back into parking spots. Like they want to show you how strong their driving skills are. And the other piece of it, and I've actually asked some people, like there have been times when I've said to people, you know, two or three times over 20 years, like, hey, why do you back into a parking spot? And the answer they give is because you can take off faster. Like they want to be able to peel out of the parking spot when they get back to it. And I just, it, to me, like, I don't know what to say. I'm not fully, I don't have a fully formed theory on this yet, but all I know is nobody I'm related to would ever back into a parking spot. Okay. This, like, I feel like should go to your analyst. I think, first of all, for all your, like, I don't essentialize, I don't say Jews do this, you are the one who, like, is like, that's goyish. <laughs> when have Jews I ever do said that. I don't do that? Every activity comes across. A few episodes ago, you're like, you know, I that. hate to essentialize, but Jews <laughs> don't use Tupperware. <laughs> It is really, really funny. So for all this, like, we're so welcoming. But if you do this, you're not one of us. No, you're still welcome. Latte, not one of us. I think this actually speaks more to your, like, ideas of masculinity and then how you layer that over onto, like, Jewish men, almost. First, like, because, like, I grew up, I mean, Howie B backs into every parking space. Does he really? He's an amazing... As do I, by the way. Yeah, and, and it's, like, it's just easier to get out. You don't need to peel out necessarily, but, like, it... But it's harder to get in. It's six and one half dozen the other. You're pulling it. You're backing in and 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 driving the no, front end Mark, out. If you want to judify this, yeah. here's the explanation. Howard Budnick and myself, both descendants from Holocaust survivors, always have this notion of <laughs> have an escape plan ready. No, yes, it's hard to get in, but you don't know when the footsteps, you know, and the knock on the no, door will come and when it does. This, okay, I'm not. Al- I'm not allowing. I'm not allowing the Holocaust to be the, the reasoning for this. Too late. Um, too late. And for for, the, for most things, spots, it is. That's a good argument. For most things, it is the reason. <laughs> but um, I actually think so. How we will get the best parking spot, no matter like where we are. Like you know, like a block away isn't good enough. We will go right to the place and find the spot You will circle the block 20 times to get the spot. Not 20 times because we'll find it after like one. Right. Um, But I think the backing in, it's funny because like I I hate backing out of parking spots because you're like, is someone coming? You can't see it. It's like a little bit. into them. I mean, I still, what's the diff? But the difference is other cars, I think. But I I don't back, I mean, I don't drive anymore. So um, (laughs) (laughs) I, but I did, I was like a very good parallel parker. That's what I was raised with. I am a good parallel parker. Like I don't have any insecurities about my driving skills or my parking skills. I'm sure. It's just like your manly. It just like, there's no part of me that's like, I got to zoom out. When I leave, I got to go front end first. It strikes me as kind of, it's, it's swaggerish. I think you only noticed because the guy had a pickup truck. I think if he had like yeah, a Honda think, Accord, you'd be like, Stop. And he was probably really tall too, that guy. No, no, no. He was short and broad. He was one of those guys who was like 5'6", but he can bench 380. He was a little spark plug of a guy. I feel like you, in all of your interactions, like are looking for larger meaning. Oh, no, that is 100% true. And by the way- Sounds exhausting. That, what's so interesting about that, Stephanie Taylor Butnick, is that I had a long texting conversation with my friend Jed Sugarman, where he was talking about, you know, we talk about like, what kind of, are you a sports Jew? Are you a book Jew? Or like, we are sort of, you know, categorize like different types of people just for fun. We don't want to essentialize anyone. He was saying that the difference between a Yekka and a Litvak, right, which historically is like the German Jews versus the Eastern European Jews. But in his taxonomy, he was saying the difference is that Litvaks psychologize everything. They interrogate everything. And the Yekkas, like, they just want to be- They just do. They just do. And so they, it's a kind of, it's a more American and a more assimilated, like the way Midwesterners just like, they get in their camper and go and they have no problems. And Jews are always neurotic about everything in the stereotype, right? Mm-hmm. A very problematic stereotype. But his take on it is that the Litvak, the, the sort of Eastern European Jewish type is one that's always looking for the deeper meaning and psychologizing everything. So it's like the Nebeshi, Woody Allen. Sort of. Yes, exactly. And, and and that when you achieve a kind of assimilated, all right, Nick way about yourself. You can you, like relax. You relax and you stop problematizing everything. And what's so interesting is there's so much of the like Eastern Eastern European stereotype that I don't identify with and that I wasn't raised with. And yet, unquestionably, my family, like I was baffled that there were families that don't psychologize and sort of tear apart people they know. Like, what's their meaning? How's their marriage? What's going like to me? That's that's all you do. That's life. That's what one. I mean, we have a whole religion that's kind of about finding like meaning in like literally everything we do. Exactly. 
you know, books written about if you eat like a, a cheese sandwich, do you like say a blessing over the bread or the cheese? Like, <laughs> it's the ultimate finding meaning in small detail religion. Right. So here I am finding the meaning in backing into a parking Correct. space, and I very Talmudic of you. Thank you for giving the imprimatur, the Zionist hexer on that. Listeners, do you back into parking spaces or drive front end <laughs> in? Write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. We, meanwhile, will talk about some news of the Jews. Stephanie, this week you are our Hummus News Correspondent. What's going on in the world of Hummus? Hummus. There are some cray-cray stories on the legume front. (laughs) (laughs) Here we go. JTA is covering the hummus beet, specifically actually chickpeas. Here's the first one. Thief tries to steal half a ton of chickpeas from kibbutz in southern Israel. Here's the first line. You can make a lot of hummus bread from a half ton of chickpeas but not from jail. (laughs) Oh my. Anyway, so someone was arrested for an alleged attempt to steal, I guess, half a ton of chickpeas, which is not a measurement I'm familiar with. The chickpeas were found in an abandoned car that matched the description of a suspicious vehicle reported leaving kibbutz Nahal O's. It is believed that the legumes were stolen from the kibbutz's agricultural fields. Leo, what's going on there? Why would someone steal a half ton of chickpeas in their unadulterated non-hummus state? I mean, look, we've all had that night, right? (laughs) in which your craving just like is for a half a ton of something. I don't know. I don't judge. But the good news was for that guy, at least those chickpeas weren't completely contaminated because Houston-based Pita Pal Foods is recalling like a hundred varieties of chickpea spread. They're calling it chickpea dip, which I think is what we call, was it originally called hummus Ooh. because it may be contaminated with listeria. <laughs> uh, is listeria, that's a mouthwash, right? Or is yeah, that that's, a disease? That's a, yeah. And here I thought Pita Pal was going to be the new PayPal. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you chickpeas. So yeah, I don't know what's happening with the chickpea like right now. It's very hot, but very, you know, dangerous. You know know what I think? I think, you know, how every once in a while we'll have um, a member of the J crew go on the Facebook group and post like a picture of that hummus chocolate, like chocolate hummus spread. Right. Mm -hmm. Could you guys believe it's real? I think hummus has just hit peak hummus. It's it's become the bagel. Yeah, it's 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 going the way of the bagel. we, We were losing it. Once they're calling it a, what is it, a chickpea dip? Chickpea spread. spread. Oh, Oh, God. (laughs) Sid used to have a beef with people, with Americans, like totally non-Israeli Americans who called it hummus. She was like, we're in America, call it hummus. And that was was where I was with it 10 or 12 years ago. I feel like if one thing has come out of my four years doing this podcast, it's that I now feel comfortable with hummus. Well, the problem is like I was saying hala and someone like wrote in and was like, you host a Jewish podcast. You should say hala. And I explained, I was like, that's a hard sound to make. But now I say, hal- I do say challah now. But I'm like, I, do. I, I feel know, a little bit like a fraud. I come from Israel and hummus is literally all I ate, uh, you know, between the years of 1976 and say like <laughs> 2001. And I, here, like in a restaurant, I, I feel like a dick if I'm like, uh, can I have the <laughs> Like, no, yeah. uh, excuse me, sir. I'll have the hummus. This is America. We call it hummus. Ah, bread. Right. I just want to add about the challah that my formative experience eating it was that when my friend Derek and I would play Atari and then segue into Scrabble while MTV was playing in the background at his place on Forest Park Ave in Springfield, we would eat challah and drink root beer. We would like his mom would get a challah. We would we would excavate is the challah. Is he Jewish? Derek is his father is Jewish, but became a Unitarian minister. So he has. But like this wasn't like we're Jewish. So we have no, challah no, no, around. no. This is like you went to you went to Waldbaum's Food Mart or the Big Y, and you bought a big challah, and it was a good food for two like eleven year old boys to eat while they were being latchkey kids with no moms anywhere, just watching TV and playing Atari and whatnot. It was like you'd excavate it. We wouldn't slice it. We'd like reach in and get out the good part in the middle mm-hmm. and eat chunks of that while drinking root beer. The good and part like, is on the outside. Though. I'm just saying that was my childhood. Okay, your childhood was backing into spaces with your dad in uh, on Long Island, and mine was Hala and root beer. Boris Johnson, the new Prime Minister of England, his childhood was being one eighth Jewish. Apparently, the badly named website BreakingIsraelNews.com, oh, <laughs> whose news is neither breaking nor Israeli nor news, uh, had an article this week that Boris Johnson has Jewish roots. His maternal great grandfather was a Russian Jewish immigrant named Elias Avery Lowe. Lowe was not a practicing. Jew, but was descended of a strictly Orthodox Jewish rabbi from Lithuania. What's so ridiculous about this article, right, is clearly some PR flack for Johnson was like, write about my, you know, shore up my support with those Jews. They're souring on labor anyway. By the way, uh, he's descended of an Orthodox rabbi. Everyone is descended from an Orthodox rabbi. Like there is no one in humanity, least of all a Jew, who doesn't have somebody back there who claimed to be an Orthodox 
rabbi. Well, it's like how Gwyneth Paltrow is descended from like a rabbinic dynasty right, in Poland. Right. A dynasty, a rabbinic dynasty in the shtetl of Paltrow. The Gooper Rebbe. The Gooper Rebbe. <laughs> <Gooper Rebbe. laughs> Although Boris Johnson, in his defense, also spent, I think, quite a bit of time in a kibbutz in Israel. Well, He's a real friend. breakingisraelnews.com has some <laughs> 40-year-old news of that as well. Uh, not only does he have stronger ties to Israel through his Jewish stepmother, Jennifer Kidd Johnson. British Jews all have last names like Kidd and Johnson, by the way. But in 1984, at age 20, he and his sister Rachel, well, well chosen, <laughs> spent six weeks in Israel volunteering on Kibbutz Kafar Hanazi, 22 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. In Is that Israel. near the chickpea incident? <laughs> so, it is as far from the chickpea incident as you can, as you can possibly get. So anyway, um, welcome to the Mishpocha, Boris. Of course, what I'm thinking is if he'll pimp himself out to BreakingIsraelNews.com, why wouldn't he come on Unorthodox? To- we are breaking <laughs> Jewish news every day every, here. Every week. Yeah. Every week here. And then Liel, uh, finally in News of the Jews, this one was kind of made for you, the Maccabee Games. The um, It's Maccabee. <laughs> It's, or Maccabia. It's Maccabia. It's Hummus. The Maccabi Games, the Maccabia Games, have added e gaming, whatever that is, to their Olympic style competition. I read from the forward 3,000 Jewish teenagers are due to compete in various athletic events at the upcoming Maccabi Games in Atlanta from July 28th to August 2nd. Oh, it started already. Oh, my. This year, eSports are joining the lineup of events. Lost Tribe eSports will host eight tournaments over the games. There will be a 21-station gaming center where 56 teens can play two-on-two at any time. The video games include Super Smash Bros. Ultimate, Rocket League, NBA 2K19, and Madden NFL 19. Here's the kicker, Stephanie Liel. After the games, Lost Tribe Esports is moving forward with online tournaments open to athletes and other Jewish teens from around North America. It will eventually be a global year-round activity. If this isn't a Hamas plot to stupid our people, I don't know what. Like, it's over, right? Like, no more Nobel laureates. No more Harvard professors. It is freaking over. No, you got it completely wrong. We're done. You you laugh, but like literally yesterday, a sixteen year old kid won three million dollars at the Fortnite World Championship. Uh, you know, if you go to the Maccabia Games and you're like the world's greatest, say, artistic gymnast or whatever they call this, you know, sport or even decathlon uh, athlete, what do you win at the end of your competition? You win you know? the synchronated swimming gold medal. You win medal. a prize and your parents love and admiration forever. Mm-hmm. That's right. The 16-year-old who's Maybe like a makeout like session <laughs> after the games? With Yaron. $3 million. <laughs> okay, so you're, you're like, there is like financial stability right. coming out of this. Liel, there's some underprivileged neighborhoods you can go into and tell them that the NBA is the way out. Uh, that the NBA K-19 uh, <laughs> video game is the way out. You don't even have to leave the house. The funny thing about this is that the Maccabia Games was like, it was the Jewish Olympics. It was like, Jews can do sports too. And oh my God, you're like, so right. <laughs> this was like, and send your kid and they'll like play soccer and they'll meet other <laughs> Jews. And now it's like, they will play video games. They will face we a screen. We full circle. <laughs> <laughs> they will sit now, indoors and be even more you know pale. The, the new Zionist dream is? Some bespectacled nebbish <laughs> sitting on the couch. playing. If you control F it, it is no dream. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Leo, we didn't think you were going to be here today. We didn't know you were going to phone in. And so we put Billy Joel on the news of the Jews. Last bit of news of the Jews. Billy Joel, who's kind of newly out as a Jew. Remember, he wore a Star of David on stage at Madison Square Garden after the Charlottesville white supremacy I like march. like they were like, he's a hero. Yeah. <laughs> He gave an interview to Vice magazine where he was talking about the the rise in neo-Nazi activism. He basically said, why aren't we bashing these guys' skulls in? He said, so when those guys see punks walking around with swastikas, how do they keep from taking a baseball bat and bashing those crypto-Nazis over the head? Those creeps are going to march through the streets of my country? Uh Uh-uh. I was personally offended. That's why I wore that yellow star. I had to do something, and I didn't think speaking out about it was going to be as impactful. So basically what he's saying is, I wore a star, David, but if I were 20 years younger and saw them on the streets of Brooklyn. Or the streets of Cold Spring Harbor, where he has his sprawling mansion. His sprawling mansion. Yeah. He would have bashed their skulls. And all I can say is that I think he feels the pressure. I think he's trying to be a big shot. And I think it won't work because... He's going to smash a bottle of red over their heads? Exactly. And only the good diet.
Our Gentile of the Week, this is a, a piece that we were um, sad to cut from our conversion episode, but we decided to just run all the stuff we had on people converting to Judaism. This guy converted from another kind of Christian to Mormonism. His name is Dennis Schleicher. I interviewed him in Connecticut a few months back. He has a book out called Is He Nuts? Why a Gay Man Would Become a Member of the Church of Jesus Christ. Have a listen to my interview with Dennis Schleicher. My name is Dennis Schleicher, and I'm from Glastonbury, Connecticut. I remember growing up, my memories of just having the camaraderie of the family getting together and we had like three houses they would open up on the street and then we would have picnics with about 150 people over and it was just spectacular. I started modeling at a very young age. I started doing commercials and then I ended up appearing on a soap opera, The Guiding Light. It was an experience, I loved the spotlight. I was a ham. You know, I was that kid that uh, was in the DuPont carpet commercial that would knock over the juice and go, oh, mom, I'm so sorry. And she's like, don't worry, we got DuPont. It was a great experience. But there was something, you know, um, missing internally. I played an important key in my parents going to church is we had a congregational church in our backyard. And my best friend, Katie Werkheiser, used to go there. And I asked my parents, why don't we go to church? I could see the steeple from the windows of the back of the house, and I would stare at it and go, I want that camaraderie. I want that fellowship. I want that community. And so we started going to church. That was probably, I was in third grade. My parents were born again in eighth grade. I wanted to stick with the congregational church. I was kind of known as the outcast in the family, the black sheep. And I always felt like, why couldn't you be more like your younger brother, Darren? And that's when I started dealing with, you know, questions about my sexual identity and thinking that I need to be straight. I need to, you know, marry a woman. But there was still that disconnect because my uh, parents were now at a fundamentalist church and I was told, Jesus doesn't love me. God's going to strike me dead. I'm going to hell. And so I'm hearing this repetitively and I'm going, this doesn't resonate with my soul. So it was emotional for me to say, you know, mom, dad, I'm going to continue to go to the congregational church. I'm going to get confirmed so I could receive communion. And it was something that brought a lot of turmoil. You know, my mother always suspected that I was gay or that I was different. And I didn't even know what that word was until I was in the seventh grade. And we had a substitute teacher and they were calling her a lesbian. And I asked one of our teachers and she said, the word lesbian is same sex, you know, a woman that is in a relationship with another woman. And I went just like if a man was in a relationship with another man. And I lit up like a light bulb going, this is me. But then I kind of crawled under the table. I had a girlfriend in high school, and we never kissed. We just walked each other to class. We held hands, and, and nothing ever happened. I became an emancipated minor at the age of 16, so I legally divorced myself from my parents. Because the fundamentalism at the church became so intense, and they ended up tricking me many times into saying, we're going to breakfast, you want to come with us? And I'd say, sure. And then I'd say, this isn't the way to breakfast. And I'd end up locked in a room in the church or, or in someone's home. And pastors would be coming in like I was in a, you know, like a padded room, you know, and I couldn't get out. And I just felt that this was a little too down my throat, and it just didn't resonate. I joined a network marketing company in 2014, and 99% of all network marketing companies are based out of Utah because they believe in sustainable income and residual income. So I quickly became a leader in this company, and there were four owners, and I knew all their wives, and I'd qualify for the trips, and I finally had to say to one of the owners, um, what faith are you? And they told me, well, we're a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I'm like, what? This is nuts. But they never judged me for my risque behavior on Facebook or my, my funny posts that would get the thousand comments or the shares or the likes and, oh, ha-ha, Dennis, you're so funny. And, you know, it was just very 
unchristian-like behavior, but it was, I could get away with it because I was a gay man. I kind of used that to my advantage, and then it was just something that they never put me down for that. They always edified me on stage and said, please welcome our one of our earners, Dennis Schleicher, blah, blah, blah. And it just was something that was natural, and I just was like, why aren't they judging me? Why aren't they, why are they just, why are they loving me so much? I've been told hellfire and damnation and my parents are going to, you know, I'm going to hell and, you know, God doesn't love me. And so I called one of the owners and she's like, stop it right there, Dennis. God loves everyone. And it was like, whoa, you know, like I haven't heard that in years. My company merged with another network marketing company in 2017, and I was flown out to Lehigh, Utah, and I toured the company, and I put my name on it, and I ended up stealing my first Book of Mormon. And I left there, and I ran into some missionaries, and they were flying on their mission for two years, and we happened to be on the same flight, and I started asking questions. But I never opened my Book of Mormon. I just showed them, look what I just stole or professionally borrowed. And what really threw me for a loop is a 26-year-old and his wife invited me on their vacation to Palmyra, New York, upstate New York in the middle of nowhere, to visit these Latter-day Saint historical sites. And I'm going, what? I don't want to go to Palmyra. What do I want to go look at Mormon historical sites for? So... I cordially said, Andrew, yeah, oh, thank you, yeah, I'll go. And then I'm thinking, I have to find an excuse. Maybe my 90-year-old grandmother will need me or, you know. And that did not happen. So I ended up going to Palmyra. My brother passed away from a drug overdose in 2004. He was always an inspiration to me. I would talk to him on a regular basis from the other side. And I felt that that was normal for me, but not normal for everyone else. So when I was driving to Palmyra, I'd asked Darren, I said, you know, I said, I need to know what to do and I need to find out how to get out of this. And is this the right decision? What am I doing? And I was afraid I was going to a network marketing meeting that I didn't want to go to or that they were going to have me baptized that afternoon when I got there. And so I'm five miles in the middle of nowhere and my iTunes isn't working because it's uploaded to the cloud. And I said, amen. And the prayer was done. And I couldn't get iTunes to work, and I was using curse words. And so I said, let's use the old-fashioned radio. And the first station I got was a Christian station, and I heard a song that my parents had the group flown in to sing for my brother's funeral, which was I Can Only Imagine by Mercy Me. I'll dance with you, Jesus, and I'll hold you in my hands. And I just, it was 92 degrees outside and 98% humidity, and my air conditioner was on, and I just got goosebumps, my whole body. And the car filled up with steam. I could feel my brother. I could feel our Heavenly Father, the Holy Ghost. Everybody was in my car. The entire Book of Mormon could have been there for all I know in the Holy Bible. And I'm going, what is going on? Like, you know, and I just felt this sense of Darren saying, have faith. You need this. And of course, I was sobbing. And I wasn't a crier before I joined the church. So I met with Andrew and Audrey, and I told them, and they showed me these sites. And Andrew will even say, he is the last person in the world when I met him in 2014 that I ever thought would be joining this church. He was just too out there. I left there with this very strong feeling. And when I returned back home, I found a church a few minutes from my house. Um, the owners couldn't get a hold of them. It was either a number was disconnected or it was a gas station or a pizza parlor on our website. And so I ended up walking in and I walked in and I said, um, she goes, oh, you're visiting from out of town. And I had my Book of Mormon with me and my Holy Bible. And I says, uh, no, I'm a walk-in. She's like, come again. And I'm like, I'm a walk-in. She's like, oh, heavens, my goodness, uh, Gosh, uh, well, um, just stand here. Uh, okay, well, uh, don't go anywhere. I'll be right back. Let me get our sister missionaries. And these two little children, like, bursted open the doors and started running. And, hi, I'm Sister Espel, and I'm Sister Tomlinson. And a little too peachy for me at the time, but they were just so eager to have me there. And I just offered to take them to lunch on Tuesday. And I said, I have to tell you something. I'm gay. And, and they were like, they just... One of them got a tear in her eye, and she told me a story about her mother and meeting one of the 
apostles and saying that she has a you know good friend that's gay and and then all of a sudden I'm invited to dinners and all these different events that I'm going gosh this is a community this is this is great this is what it used to be like in the olden days So I returned on July 19th, 2017, and I was baptized on August 19th, 2017, and the owners of my company flew out. Now I, I work as a ward mission leader. I help sister missionaries and elders all throughout New England, uh, which is a huge responsibility. I'm like the go-to person they call whenever they need or have questions or investigators saying, I don't want to join the church because I don't think you accept my gay friends. and. That's what I'm called it. I am the last person in the world you would have ever expected would join the Mormon church. People either thought I was too gay to be Mormon or I was too smart to be Mormon. Life took an interesting turn when I was asked on March 11th of 2018 when I met one of the general authorities and he told me I heard you have a conversion story for me and I got Mormon Tourette's and I just blurted out, I'm a gay convert. And he put his hand on my shoulder and he drew me closer and he said, we need more people like you. And he goes, um, what do your friends tell you when you join the Church of Jesus Christ? And I said, you're nuts. They're going to put you through conversion therapy. They're going to have you married off to a woman. That's not the case. He said, that's what I want your book to be about, is, is he nuts? Why would a gay man become a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? And I'm like, you're nuts. I don't want to write a book. And I ignored the prompting and ignored it and ignored it. And I kept um, and finally, I just woke up one morning at 3.30 in the morning, and I was prompted by the Holy Ghost, and I started to see a need for it. Is it your plan to be celibate? Um, right now, yes, because it's something that um, the the blessings that I have from being a member of the church is, is, is something that I, I just can't imagine living without. I believe strongly in our prophet and our apostle. It's funny because when... When I received the Holy Ghost after I had was baptized, the I guess you could say the desire that I thought I was going to need that companion in my life to fulfill me just kind of went away. It's not there, so there's really no need for me to need to hold somebody's hand or to, you know, cuddle with somebody. It's just kind of like gone. And the desire to have sex? That's that's not there either. But it didn't make me straight. I'm still gay. So this, this tells me that gay is normal, you know, it's okay. And, and why do we have to label ourselves? Are you happy? I'm happy. I have a glow. Even my friends say, what has changed about you? Why do you have this glow about you? Or what is going on? I'm accepted and embraced as one of them. And I feel that I have a family of 180 missionaries that would take me in in a heartbeat when they, when if I got older, you know, and would, would assist me like my children would normally do. And it's just the camaraderie is just, it's, it far surpasses what, you know, I had before. As we Jews say, Mazel tov. Yes, well, thank you. I like that. That was happy Mormon Dennis Schleicher. His book is called, Is He Nuts? Why a Gay Man Would Become a Member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. 
And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. J. Crew, you have one more day to fill out our survey. Remember, we're asking you for your feedback. This is your chance to rant at us. We promise you we will read every survey that is filled out. A few hundred of them have already been filled out. Please be the last person to give us an earful or an eyeful. Go to bit.ly slash uosurvey19. That's bit.ly slash uosurvey19. We have over 500 responses. We're looking for 1,000, so it's on you. You know what else is on you? Could you give us some money? It is money. <laughs> Last year, we pulled in about $40,000. Um, we would like to pull in 75000 this year. I just made that number up right now. But look, here's the thing. Um, we are a nonprofit. Your three hosts draw no extra salary for doing this show. I draw no salary at all for doing this show. Um, the other hosts, of course, are staff at Tablet. I'm a freelance guy who comes in, gets up at 5 a.m. Tuesday mornings and makes this show for you. And I love doing it. And I know that 5 a.m. wake up is rough. It is rough, but you know what? I'm never going to stop, but what I would like is some more funds so that we can keep paying our producers and our editor fairly so that we can send ourselves and freelancers around the country to get stories of Jews across America so that we can keep doing our conversion episodes so that we can keep talking about apologies on Yom Kippur, these sort of these shows that take a little extra effort to make them a little extra special. And we would love for you to go to tabletmag.com/donate and if you do, we have a prize for you at the $180 level. We love all of you. We love the $18 contributions. We love the, f I find something especially meaningful about the $5 contributions because I always figure that's someone who really doesn't have a penny to give but gives $5. But at the 180 level this year, Stephanie, what do we have? You will be like one of the first people to get a copy of the newest Jewish encyclopedia, our book coming out this fall. That is a super special gift. It comes straight from the warehouse. I mean, it's like, going to be on your door. Like it's going to smell before, new. Yeah, yeah. It's going to have that new book smell. And look, it's super awkward to ask for money. I'm like physically uncomfortable right now. But the thing is, all the things we do actually require a lot of time and work and people, right? Like finding the really good guests, making sure we have time to book the studio, getting to our live shows, booking live shows, talking to people about live shows. All this stuff is is time and resources. And, and the more Honestly, like money helps with all of that. And yeah. it's super weird to talk about that, but um, we have to. And, you know, I feel like every podcast does it. So maybe that's okay. Maybe it's okay. My goal is for everyone who listens to give us something. Like if you could just say, what is this show worth to you? Is it worth a dollar an episode? Is it worth 50 cents an episode? Is it worth a nickel an episode? And just give something. And obviously we need the 180s and the $360 contributions. And we're grateful to the people who give them. And please, if you can, please do. But if everyone gives something, we will get to our goal. And that's what I would like to see happen. Also, it's way cheaper than a synagogue membership. So much cheaper. Oh, my God. And day school. And and summer camp. <laughs> let me tell steal. you. Let me tell you. <laughs> force your kids to listen to us, and you won't have to send them to summer camp. Tabletmag.com slash donate. And thank you. Mailbox. Got a letter in the mailbox. Got a letter in the mailbox. Mailbox. Unorthodox at tabletmag.com. That's unorthodox at T-A-B-L-E-T-M-A-G.com. To the mailbox. We've let the mailbox sort of get backed up. There's so many good letters. Uh, we read them all, but we don't have time for them all. I'm going to just pick a few highlights. <clears throat> 
Dear Unorthodox, you may or may not remember us as the Canadian couple who three years ago raced each other to write Unorthodox Mazel Tovs ahead of our wedding. Update. With joy in our hearts, we celebrate a wonderful occasion. One year ago today-ish, it occurred to us that we should let the Unorthodox hosts know about Isaac Arthur Markusov, our wonderful little boy, born June 2018. That is what happened when we took a wee break from our cherished ritual of listening to your podcast in bed on weekend mornings. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's so intimate and so great. And like, who are we kidding? Lots of people. Like, this is what American Jewelry does is they listen to our podcast have intimate time and then fire up the podcast again. Like I like props. This to is the, continuity, man. This is con- props to the Marcus officer just admitting it. That that's what I mean. That's what people. I mean, I don't because that would be really weird to listen to my own podcast in such circumstances. But everyone who doesn't work on the podcast, I trust that's what everyone does. Anyway, Jason and Aaron continue in their letter. It turns out that this ritual is not so compatible with rookie parenthood. Isaac cries or babbles through the news of the Jews or reaches for the phone or speaker on our headboard amid interviews. We now routinely fall behind on episodes but still insist on always listening together on the occasional night while playing cards, or we cover several episodes on long car trips. Is it that our time has gotten shorter or have your podcasts gotten longer or perhaps both? (laughs) The answer is both. This letter has been a year in coming as we have learned that parent's credo, get done what you must, procrastinate on what you can. But at least this way, Isaac fits into his unorthodox onesie. If you read this on the air, we'll catch up and listen to it eventually. (laughs) Jason and Aaron Markusoff, Calgary, Alberta. Thank you, guys. 2019 was great. You didn't miss anything. Uh, It's December now. That's right. Marianne Williamson is the Democratic nominee. (laughs) You don't care because you're up in Canada, but, you know, some of us, that really matters. Uh, Okay, another letter. Dear Unorthodox, I've just finished listening to episode 189 and realized this will be the last episode I will listen to as a Gentile. By the time the next episode drops, Friday, New Zealand time, I will be in front of the bait den finishing the conversion process, and Unorthodox has been with me from the start. Thank you for the sense of belonging that your show has given me as I moved from being not Jewish to not not Jewish to a fully fledged member of the J Crew. Shalom, Emmett Roberts. Now, I just have to be clear to Emmett that you've never not been a member of the J Crew. That's true. Our Gentile, I think he means like the larger J Crew. He does, but like I just capital want to say J. that for our show, every listener is a member of the J Crew, Gentile or not. And now. Our two favorites of the week. Yes, even even more favorite than those two about how we helped someone with conversion and how we helped conceive a child. These are even better. Dear Unorthodox, I found your discussion of the shiksa topic highly interesting, and I wish to propose an exception to the question he means of whether or not it's offensive. I took my wife from among the daughters of the Gentiles. Her name is Katie Hicks. When she was an OBGYN resident at NYU around 1980, she was the only non-Jew in her year. She had a mailbox for the prenatal tracings she had to read. The mailbox was labeled with her name, H-I-C-K-S. One of her colleagues added two letters, an S at the beginning and an A at the end. Spelling Shiksa. And we always thought that was pretty inoffensive under the circumstances. All the best wishes, Henry Rosenberg, Northampton, Massachusetts. That is very clever. Very clever. Henry, repping the 413 area code, big props to you for being my Western Massachusetts brother. Finally, hi, Unorthodox crew. I just listened to your live show from Queens, and I have a funny Shiksa story. Me, an Irish Catholic, and my best friend, a hardcore wasp. But let's pause a moment and say, like, what is a hardcore wasp? It's like gin at breakfast. <laughs> that is totally Sailing before breakfast. <laughs> Pajamas all the time. All the time. Me, an Irish Catholic, and my best friend, a hardcore wasp, are engaged to a set of Jewish best friends. It's very adorable and convenient. I love this. I would watch this movie. It's this, literally when Harry met Sally. This movie is an Updike novel. See, where I think this is going is very, very like mid-70s ice storm. Uh, they're all going to end up in one very large bed in Kennebunkport together. Anyway, back to the letter. Long story short, my best friend and I, A, didn't know shiksa was a derogatory term, and B, thought the term was shitsa, S-H-I-T-S-A. <laughs> Which would be really derogatory, no? In conclusion, I wouldn't mind being called a shiksa because it's definitely better than being called a shitsa. I love your show. Best, Bridget. Bridgie. <laughs> Bridget, Muffy, we love you guys. Um, and hope good luck, you know. Now, I have known some Jewish Liams. Liam has crept into, Liam and Aiden have crept into yeah. Jewish naming. I don't think Bridget is there yet. I think Bridget is really still Catholic, like Irish Catholic. So Bridget, well-named. I sat down with Liz Feldman. She is the creator of the Netflix show Dead to Me, which stars Christina Applegate and Linda Cardellini. It is a dark comedy trauma. They're calling it a traumedy, and it is really good. It just got renewed for season two. 
Welcome, Liz. Thank you so much. So we have a lot to discuss. I was hoping you could start by telling us a little bit about Dead to Me for our listeners who haven't not yet binged the series. Well, you know, like you said, uh, Dead to Me is a, it could be considered a dark comedy, but I like to think of it as more of a genre non-conforming show about two women who meet in a grief group, form a complicated friendship that in many ways should not be um, a good relationship, but turns out to be in many ways the thing that saves them both. It is a dark comedy, but in many ways it's also a drama. It's also a bit of mystery. There's suspense in there. It is very bingeable, very hard to watch just one from what I'm being told. And, um, you know, Christina uh, Applegate and Linda Cardellini give incredible performances, as does James Marsden and Ed Asner. It's a really incredible cast. And, you know, if you like the kind of show that makes you not able to stop watching, I think this could be your show. So someone described it as a tromedy. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's totally fair. I didn't make that term up, tromedy, but um, I think that that is a really accurate way to put it. You know, I think it's new to some people that the show can at one turn make you cry and then in the next breath make you laugh. But to me, that's my experience of life. Life is sort of a tromedy. So I think that's pretty fitting. Yes, and I would say that that's a profoundly Jewish insight. Uh, I know this is a Jewish podcast. We don't have to make everything Jewish. But to me, the idea of like some of the funniest things happen in the darkest of times is such an important lesson. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, it's a very Jewish coping mechanism to laugh through pain. You know, I mean, I think in many ways, you know, having been, you know, I'm, I, by the way, recently did my 23andMe, I'm 97.7% Jewish. Mazel tov. So, oh, thanks. You know, I was definitely raised, you know, with, with the idea that, that, that humor can heal and that, you know, it, it's okay to make a joke in an inappropriate time. It's how we cut through tension. And so, you know, I've been doing that my whole life. And in many ways, this show is for the first time, really, truly, you know, from my lens. This is how I look at life. And even though it's got, you know, lots of twists and turns, like, that's how I see life, too. I, you know, things can happen sometimes. And I'm like, if I wrote this down, nobody would believe it. But yet those things happen all the time. Like, you're just like, you can't possibly believe some of the stuff that happens in reality. Um, And so I was just, you know, hoping to do my best in capturing that and putting it on your TV screens. So you've written that the facts of the show are made up, but the feelings are real. Could you explain um, some examples of that? Sure, yeah. I mean, when I say the facts are made up, but the feelings are real, it's because the show is not autobiographical uh, in terms of it's not based on any one event in my life. You know, those characters are not based on, uh, you know, me or, or actual real people from my life, but they are inspired by real people. And the feelings are inspired by grief that I have been through, pain that I have carried with me, and loss that I've experienced. So, you know, the the genesis of the show really came out of a really dark period of time in my life. Uh, On my 40th birthday, um, very sadly and unexpectedly, my cousin passed away um, uh, that day of a heart attack. And he wasn't that much older than me. Um, And that's aside from the point, you know, he was beloved and, you know, the life of every family party. And, you know, it was just it was a very big loss, you know, at a very pivotal moment in my life. You know, when you turn 40, you start to look at your own mortality. And then, you know, in that same breath, you know, to lose a a, a close loved one was uh, really difficult. And at the same time, I was going through my own fertility struggles. Uh, I mean, literally at the same time, you know, waiting to find out you know, for the 600th time if I was pregnant, and uh, I was not. So it was just a moment in time that felt very dark and sad and all sorts of complicated layered feelings for me. And that's where the show was born from, those feelings, but not those facts. And that's what I mean by that. You know, I brought up the idea to a couple of producers, and in a way, the idea came from the ether. I had been set up on a pitch meeting And I was told I didn't have to have any ideas and that they had ideas. So, you know, just sit back and listen. And if something, you know, strikes you, then, you know, go from there. And yet I showed up to the meeting and they were like, we're sick of our ideas. Do you have any? And this was about a week after my cousin's funeral. And, you know, I just had, I guess, death on the brain and loss in my heart. So I just said, "Uh, um, 
one of them's a widow and the other one she meets her at a grief group and you know, I mean, it really just, I, I, I just came from somewhere else. Uh, and then when I looked back a, a few weeks later and started to think about, you know, why did I say this? Where did this come from? I realized it really came from my own personal pain and loss. Christina Applegate's character is recently widowed at the beginning of this series. Um, her husband but husband was killed in a hit and run as a pedestrian. It's pretty gory. Um, but one one through line for Linda Cardellini's character is is difficulty having children. And yeah. I know you say that that comes from your own life. It's something that we actually really don't see often, like a very deeply moving depiction of struggles with infertility that, right. you know, doesn't always end with, with a happy, happy ending. Um, why was it important for you to include that as part of this character? It's the story that was inside of me that I think I needed to get out, you know, and I think when you're an artist, when you're a writer, you know, you have this unique ability to air your feelings and your experiences in a way that can help other people. And I take that responsibility seriously, you know, even when it's a comedy. So, um, you know, it was something I was going through. It was very real for me. And I wanted these women to be real women. I wanted them to be experiencing struggles that real women experience. And it wasn't something I had really seen depicted in this way. And, you know, I I had been waiting for my happy ending and was not getting it. And, you know, I think that so much of what this show does is subvert your expectations. And that for me, again, is my experience of life. Just when you think things are going one way or, oh, this will, this has to be the one, you know, it's not not that simple. You know, you don't really get to control things the way you wish you could. And so I was just interested in showing, you know, sort of the relentlessness of of life and also the relentlessness of the of what can be a very long-term fertility struggle for many women that doesn't often end in, you know, the baby that you were dreaming for your whole life. So, you know, that's where this comes from. That's why I wanted to do it. I, I really was hoping, you know, to help women out there who have had similar experiences feel less alone, you know, in their journeys. It's also interesting the way the show sort of deals with whether or not this can be counted as, as traditional grief in the sense of of, of loss of and, and mm-hmm. of this struggle. And that seemed to be, and then there's one line, I think, where Christina Applegate says, like, unless a Republican's asking. Right, right. So how do you sort of thread that needle of basically showing the loss that this woman felt? I think just by exactly that, by her friend reflecting to her that what she sees is somebody who's going through grief. I think that when you've been trying to get pregnant for a really long time, every month can feel like a loss when you get that negative pregnancy test. And I started to realize that grief comes in different sizes, you know, and grief comes in different shapes. And it's not just black and white, like, oh, somebody died, I'm in grief. You can be in grief over the loss of a job, you can be in grief over the loss of a relationship, or over the loss of the hope of something. And that's what I was experiencing. And so that's just, you know, what I tried to do throughout the series is give you that feeling that Judy had, which is really very much the feeling I had. And Christina Applegate's character, she has had a preventative double mastectomy, um, as as Christina had in real life. Was that something that she wanted to bring to the role, or was that already planned? No, that is something that she wanted to bring to the role. We were actually already shooting. The episodes were written, and she, you know, called me one weekend and said, you know, I've been thinking about what happened in this marriage between Jen and Ted. You know, where did it sever? You know, where was the break? And, you know, these things don't just happen for no reason. And I think maybe the reason is that she had a double mastectomy. And I was like, you know, sometimes when people say things to you, you know, creatively an idea, you know, a a ripple kind of runs through you, this sort of energy or this like electricity. And, you know, when she said that, it just was like, oh, you're so yes, of course, like that's that makes perfect sense. And it's so true for her as the actor. And, you know, who better to portray that than her. So it really made sense for the character. And I thought it was really generous of, of Christina to bring to the character. And of course, she, you know, just portrayed it beautifully. And, you know, I think it has really touched a lot of people that she, you know, was willing to bring that to, to the show. So let's talk about Ed Asner, who plays sort of like the menschy grandfatherly voice yep. of reason, referencing Auschwitz. Like, how did you find him? Did you decide that it like was be- him being Jewish important? What do you? How did you? What did you envision for that character? Yeah, you know, I mean, again, like it not being an autobiographical show, but it being a personal show, I wanted there to be a Jewish character in there, even though, 
you know, where the show is set is not a very Jewish, you know, area. Laguna Beach. You know, it's, it's <laughs> Laguna Beach, Orange County in general. I think of it as very Christian. But I wanted to put a different perspective in there. It was my original intention to make him, I mean, he is a Holocaust survivor, the character, but it's just never said. But you don't casually drop references to Auschwitz, I feel like, without being one. If you're right, exactly. That so that's something that we tried to do a lot in the show was like not be overt you know, and not be, I never wanted you to feel like, oh, we're getting backstory. You know, I just wanted you to feel like you were living with these characters. And I had no idea it would be at Asner when I wrote the part. It's, and the part is very much based on my own grandfather, you know, and just like the sweetness I felt with him. But, you know, he was also pretty salty at the same time. When the cast directors brought up at Asner for the role, like I was like, no way. <laughs> I mean, Lou Grant? Are you kidding me? So you've described yourself in an interview as a, quote, big Jew. Is it true that you saw a Purim play at synagogue and decided you wanted to be in the business? That is absolutely true. I have an older sister who is uh, four and a half years older than me, and she played Queen Esther in the Purim play at synagogue. Wow. So she was probably eight or nine at the time, you know, which made me three or four. And I guess from the way my mother tells it, I took my mother's hand, walked her up to the stage and said, I want to do that. And so I guess that's when I got the bug. And my sister also is in the business and, you know, was an actress for a long time and is now a writer and director. I just really emulated her growing up and just sort of knew from then, I, I just knew I wanted to be in entertainment. When I was uh, 10, for my birthday, I asked my parents for an agent. <laughs> so, you know, and they were kind of like, um, that's not really how it works. When you're old enough to kind of just like do it yourself and take yourself on the subway, I'm from Brooklyn, and, you know, to take yourself into the city, like you can do it then. And so that's exactly what I did. And then as a teenager, you got hired to be uh, a writer and performer on All That which is basically yes. like Saturday Night Live for kids. And I can't imagine actually a cooler job in the entire world. <laughs> and that was your first writer's room, right? Yeah. So as soon as I was allowed to, I would take myself into uh, the city for auditions. And I got an agent, a manager. And I started doing stand-up uh, around 15, 16 years old. And Nickelodeon, I guess, there were people who saw me doing stand-up and, you know, I guess discovered me. And yeah, that was my first job. I moved to Orlando, Florida about a month after I graduated from high school and uh, got to be on the show. And it was my first writer's room. And, you know, to be honest, it was a really difficult, challenging experience to be 18 years old. And, you know, really, I've never lived anywhere outside of my parents' home. I've never written anything outside of like some jokes and, a you know, an essay for college, you know, to get into college. And I was, you know, sort of hoist into this world I knew nothing about. I was the only female writer in the room, you know, and it was uh, it was a pretty um, eye-opening experience and really made me want to take a breath, go to college and be a, like a normal kid for a second. So were there adults writing for the show or is it just like you oh, and yeah. Keenan I was, and Amanda Bynes sitting there? No, no, no. It was a totally separate uh, staff of writers. It was uh, all men and me. And I was 18 and everybody was much older than me. And it definitely was not a good environment for a teenage girl. But, you know, <laughs> there you go. I feel like it's one of those things that, like, wouldn't fly today. Oh, I mean, to put it uh, bluntly, the head writer of that show has since been accused multiple times of sexual harassment. Oh, wonderful. Uh, and no longer is allowed to work for Nickelodeon. So that'll just give you a little glimpse into what my experience was. Oh, wow. So in the first scene of the show, Christina Applegate's character receives what seems to be like the millionth casserole dish from a neighbor. Uh -huh. And it is a Mexican lasagna. Can you tell us what exactly that is? I can't. I can't tell you what exactly a Mexican lasagna is. There's uh, raisins in it, though. There, I, yes. I, it, it was, you know, to me, it was like Karen, who's her neighbor, probably saw the recipe on some like, you know, mommy blog website and, you know, made it her own is, is what I imagine. And I'm curious, what are some of the reactions you've been receiving? I was looking through your Instagram and someone wrote like, we need season two, my my widow friends and I all connect to this so much. I mean, are you hearing from a lot of people who have experienced profound loss? Are you hearing from people who haven't and still love the show? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, the response has been overwhelming. It's really been incredibly positive. And I have certainly heard now from several people who have their own, you know, real deep experience with loss and grief and widows and widow groups and, you know, women who are childless, those groups. Um, 
you know, it's really it's really been completely mind blowing, you know, the reach that the show has and, you know, being on Netflix, it being an international show, you know, it released into 190 countries like on the same day. And it's incredible what that feels like, because I have heard from people from all around the world, you know, who have had all sorts of experiences, um, you know, uh, nearly daily, I'm hearing from people who are like, I lost, I just lost my father, or, you know, my brother passed away, or, you know, uh, it's, it's incredible, you know, that's the thing is that if you're alive on this planet, and, you know, you let yourself love people, like you will lose someone you love. And that's just an unfortunate fact of life. And, you know, I do think that it has resonated with people. And it, it is incredible with social media, the way people can reach you. So, it, it, it's it's amazing. I've definitely heard from people who who relate to the experience, but then I also hear from people constantly who just like enjoy the ride of the show. They just enjoy the twists and turns and the characters. And so there are a lot of twists and turns. There's sort of a big twist at the end of the first episode of the site. You know, everything sort of the show is completely different than what you think it is when it starts. And I'm so curious how you sort of like describe it. If you could describe the series, you know, the full the full season. Um, how far can you go without really spoiling anything? I mean, I don't go that far. I mean, I, I really think of the show as a as a show about grief, loss, and forgiveness as seen through a really complicated friendship between two women. I kind of, at this point, I'm just like letting the show speak for itself. I think sometimes to over-describe something is to do it an injustice. So suffice it to say, it's funny, it's sad, it'll make you feel things, and it's entertaining as the F word. That was my conversation with Liz Feldman, creator of the Netflix show Dead to Me. That show was so dark. I didn't make it that far. It was so good, but oh, I it, loved it haunted my dreams. So good. Mazel tov, Stephanie, what do we have this week? We have a mazel tov to Ruchi Cohen. She's a big fan of the show, and she brought a friend to Queens to see us live. We just missed her birthday, but she, you know, we're still celebrating for her. She's the mom of five, a Rebidson, a midwife, and a special needs advocate, and she is amazing, and we love her. A mildly belated happy birthday to Rookie Cohen. I have a, a few Mazel Tovs. I want to give a Mazel Tov to the Sky Zone in Allendale, New Jersey. It's that trampoline park. It's a franchise. My kids go to the one in Wallingford, Connecticut. Uh, Josh Cross spotted a sign there saying, no unvaccinated children allowed. So Mazel Tov to Sky Zone for, uh, for you know, keeping out the... Um, the little measles carriers. And discriminating against religious Jews. <laughs> mazel tov to them. I also want to give them a few Pittsburgh-based mazel tovs. You know, I'm reporting from Pittsburgh this year. I want to give mazel tov to Rabbi Howie Stein, who's filling in this month at New Light Synagogue in Pittsburgh. Also to uh, to University of Pittsburgh students Drew Medvid and Emily Dixon and their gang of fab undergraduate researchers who are working on a project about student response to the Tree of Life shooting. And also to Jess Nock, who was at our live show, who's a longtime fan, whom I bumped into at services last Friday night, just, just for being her she's amazing because we got to pittsburgh and she got us mugs that say love pittsburgh that's right and i, I use about it that. all the time um, and i oh, do love pittsburgh i do love pittsburgh oh and i forgot claire singer was one of the other people i met and then i have a couple names that aren't on my at the tip of my tongue but those pitt students that jess knock that howie stein all those pittsburgh folks so wonderful mazel tovs to all of them Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. We often come to you live, so to book us or advertise with us, email Josh Produce. Email Josh Producer. That's your that's your superhero name. Email super producer Josh Producer at Josh Cross, J Cross with a K at tabletmag.com. You need to wear and carry unorthodox. Go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt to get our shirts, mugs, and onesies. Follow us on Instagram at Unorthodox Podcast, on Twitter at Unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group where you can learn more about Stephanie's upcoming hang in Tel Aviv. Our show is produced by the aforementioned super producer Josh Cross. Our associate producer is Super Sara Fredman Ader. And our editor is Melissa Super Kaplan. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our social media mashkiach is Elazar Abrams. Our theme music is by Golem online golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Ahud Sela of Temple Ramat Zion in Northridge, California. Mazel Tov on his new book, Seeing Angels in the Shadow of Death, A Rabbi's Journey Through Illness and Hell. We come to you from Argo Studios, which actually endorsed Marianne Williamson for president this week. Shalom, friends.